Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is Antonia Juhas, a journalist and activist who wrote an article in the June issue of Harper's Magazine about the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. The article is more than an investigation into that monumental disaster. It's a highlight in a career dedicated to investigating the oil industry. For the past 15 years, Juhas has been following oil, the companies that are entrusted with it, the executives who make the decisions about it, and the workers who get the oil out of the ground. People who work within the oil industry are lifers. They start out young, they work their way up through the company. Most of the heads of these companies are people who spent their entire lifetimes within the same companies. And they believe that they are doing the dirty, hard work that someone has to do. Someone has to go out there and go through the muck and go through the mud and do the harm and do all the things that need to happen so that we can drive our lovely cars and they're the ones who are doing it. They also make a lot of money. And from the perspective of working their companies, they're doing a great job. So if you work in ExxonMobil, you're saying, one, I'm doing the hard, tough work that no one else wants to do, and two, I'm making more money than any company has ever made in the history of the world, so how can you possibly tell me I'm doing a bad job? It's a win-win for everybody. So when you ask them, you know, when you think about the what about, you know, the fact that the United Nations says that 80% of fossil fuels have to stay in the ground if we're going to avert the worst of climate crisis, you know, what are you doing as a company What they say is, while we're dependent on oil and fossil fuels, and we are, you need us to do our job. And then sometimes they say— You don't want to get caught up short. You don't want to get caught up short. And then sometimes they say, if you watch their commercials, and we are doing the right thing. Look at all the money we're spending on solar and wind, and look at all the money we spend on human rights. And, you know, Chevron has commercials all the time. What are they spending on solar and wind? So I did an investigation of this because, you know, this is their claim. I'm so happy you said that. (laughs) And? And I I did a piece for this in Rolling Stone. And, you know, the truth is that the oil industry has been – Um, dramatically moving its way out of alternative energy investments. If it ever really was invested, they're even now moving out of um, the biofuel sector, which is, you know, probably good. And actually, from my perspective, to be honest, you know, oil is a natural resource, just like um, the sun and the wind. There are places like the bottom of the ocean where naturally releasing oil actually lives over, you know, thousands of years in harmony with the environment. What this industry has done is taken a natural resource and turned it into a weapon of mass destruction. So I say, do we really want them to now, because they've done such a bang-up job with oil, do we really want to give them the wind and the sun? Do we really want them doing alternative energy? So my answer is no. And what I would rather say is they haven't done a bang-up job with the resource they've been given. So while we are dependent on their resource, they could do a much, much, much better job of providing it in ways that are much more environmentally and socially and economically beneficial. 
The 2010 explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon oil rig killed 11 people and led to a powerful seafloor oil gusher that lasted 87 days. According to the on-scene coordinator report, over 200 million gallons of oil leaked into the Gulf of Mexico. Antonia Yuhas investigated the multiple causes of the disaster later, but on that first day, April 20, 2010, she was far away. April 2010, and I was in San Francisco following oil in the same way that I do, and I saw sort of a blip come across the screen about an explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. And honestly, at first, it didn't ring a lot of bells because, in fact, there's a lot of offshore oil spills, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. They happen fairly routinely. We don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to them. And there weren't any pictures or anything yet. You know, this is very far out. But when you say offshore oil spills that are routine, routine means they don't blow up and there's a lot of flames billowing. Yeah, but we didn't know that. So, you know, at first... um, So the more routine ones don't involve explosions and flames. Right. Not... not, The water, just something erupts and oil goes into the the water. Oil spills happen often. Small explosions happen often. Um, So there are... And there is, um, you know, a lot of um, problems that happen with rigs out in the Gulf. As the days unfolded, though, it became clearer and clearer that this was a significant incident, much larger than I had originally thought. And what seemed also clear as the days were moving on was that it wasn't something that was going to be stopped anytime soon. Um, So I was actually contacted by The Guardian to do a piece looking mostly at, because I still didn't have a lot of information, it's still early on, you know, now I know why there wasn't information, but at the time I just assumed, you know, we're just sort of learning a little bit at a time because it's not necessarily that big of a deal. I get contacted by The Guardian to do a piece, and the piece is mostly focusing on, is it a surprise that it's BP? So, you know, this happens to a company, is it a surprise that that BP is the company? Because BP had just been through... Um, the Texas City refinery disaster, which is was prior to this, uh, one of the worst workplace disasters uh, in U.S. history in the oil sector, 15 refinery workers dead, um, 150 injured. Um, the Alaska pipeline spill had happened, which was a BP pipeline. Not a good time um, for BP. Not a good time for BP. And Tony Hayward, who was the CEO, had also been and had been for many years facing um, takeover rumors. And one of the reasons for the takeover rumors, which continue to this day, was that BP had had a very low reserve replacement ratio, which means that it wasn't replacing oil at the same speed that it was um, producing it and getting it out of the ground. And that makes it a weak company. So he was being very adventurous in And when you say replacing, oil. what do you mean? Describe that cycle. Finding new fields, new finds, finds and being able to book them, which means that um, you can prove that you can actually produce the oil. So as you're taking oil or extracting oil out of the ground, you want to know there's more out there that's yours. Exactly, exactly. And ready to go. And investors want to know that there's more out there there that you can replace. Um, And so he was extremely adventurous and also seemed to be more willing than others to— Um, you know, put time and money and profit ahead of other concerns. So when I was first looking at this uh, incident, I said, you know, no, it's not a surprise that it's BP. But then, and so that was the, that was the first, you know, sort of look that I, the first look was just the company. Then it kept unfolding. And so then by May, I was down, went down to the Gulf Coast 
and did a tour of the Gulf Coast and started interviewing people, um, started interviewing um, fishermen and fisher folks, started interviewing elected officials, started to you know really try and suss out what's unfolding here. And then that made it increasingly clear because at this point, you know, the the spill is now um, 20 days in. It's not ending anytime soon. It doesn't look like it's ending, ending anytime soon that not only is this a serious uh, disaster, but there is a huge untold story here of why it happened, um, what's what if anything is going to be able to solve the problem and what if anything is going to be changed in the future. And at that point, I decide to write a book. And I'm like, this is what I'm going to need to do. It's an article isn't going to do it. This can't right. be a short one-off. Yeah. And I... A lot and of I, surface area here. Yeah, and there's just way too much. There's just way too much going on. Um, way too many unknowns. And so I begin the process of writing um, a book and continue to write articles at the same time. But the book uh, is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. And that came out in 2011. And I continued while still covering other issues, including traveling to Afghanistan to cover the role of oil and gas in the war in Afghanistan and other things. Now, when does when does uh, uh, Atlantis, Alvin, the stuff that's in the Harper's article, when does that enter your windshield? So one of the first people I contact to find out what is the significance of this oil spill, which ultimately becomes the largest offshore oil spill in world history, is Dr. Samantha Joy. Um, a biogeochemist at the University of Georgia who everyone tells me from the very beginning is the person to talk to about oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico. Why? Because she is the person who has um, done the most investigations in the field trying to just understand— Honest investigations. Honest investigations. She's not not a patsy for the oil companies. Oh, not at all. So So you meet her. I meet her. I start interviewing her right away. Um, Had she been in the Alvin before? So she's the only person to have led a previous Alvin mission to the site of the oil spill after the oil spill. When did she go? So she went in December 2010. That year? That year. Right. So just for people who are listening, the Atlantis is the ship and the Alvin is— Now, who owns the ship? The U.S. Navy? Um, the Yeah. Or Woods Hole? The Navy um, owns this fleet of scientific research vessels. It's a ship so it's and the property, Alvin, the right? submarine. And the Alvin, which is the submersible they own. Exactly. And where does um, Woods Hole come in? Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution manages all of, okay. all of the above. They're like a subcontractor. And the Alvin submarine, it explored the Titanic. It found a nuke that got lost in the in 66, ocean. <laughs> yeah, the so, hydrogen you know, bomb. The hydrogen bomb. Yeah. So, you know, Whose hydrogen bomb was it? I can't remember. I'm going to look that up. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, but it was lost and they found so it. So she booked that trip for you and you went out when? So um, Alvin goes under $40 million worth of refurbishing. It finally gets to go out again. And when she finds out that she's going to get to do the you know the first mission back to the site of the BP oil spill, she wants there to be a journalist with her. And she lets me know that I get to were be the one, <laughs> to, to say the least. Uh, at I the same time, were you scared? and scared, yeah, yes. Like, what if this thing blows a rivet while I'm down there? They just refurbished it. Well, yeah, Great. and it turns out— um, let, me, let me see that bill for that refurbishing <laughs> of the Alvin. Exactly. Somehow, the refurbishing did not include restroom facilities. Those in need were forced to use a bottle. You can listen to earlier episodes of Here's the Thing by visiting our archives, like my conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig, who talked to me about the growing obesity pandemic and its link to a very different energy source. And we've learned that the higher your insulin goes, 
the hungrier you get. The hungrier you are. So, so sugar right. is an appetite stimulant. In a sense, Accelerant, yes. whatever you want to call it. You can call it that. Right. Absolutely. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. To better understand the impact of the 2010 BP oil spill, Antonia Uhas joined biogeochemist Samantha Joy last year in a submersible that traveled over 5,000 feet down to reach the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. It took two hours to get down. The total trip was, the total trip in the album was eight, so five hours on the bottom. So you were five hours down there yeah. with her, yeah. who'd been there before. Yes. What did she say to you? She said, you know, um, the first time she went down, there was nothing. All the sea life that could get away from the oil got away from the oil, and everything that couldn't, in her words, was nuked. It just got pummeled. We come back down. Refugee sea life. Refugee sea life. Right. Um, and basically what I see is a moonscape. It's basically there's nothing – there's basically nothing down there. Which was not normal. No. I mean normally you would see um, corals, sea fans, fish, even sharks and whales. Abundant inhibit. flora and fauna, if you will. You know, it's not like an underwater Amazon. This is sure. the deep, dark it's bottom. Land. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, there would have been a lot more life. There should have been a lot more there's life. There's nothing. There, so what we saw is, is a little bit of a change. So there was the occasional sea life that came through, and so that was positive. There were giant isopods, which are basically foot-long cockroaches. That was exciting to see float by. I uh, saw a couple of those. Um, no, wait a second. It's a fish that resembles a cockroach? It is an underwater cockroach. It's really? an, It's called an isopod. Really? Yeah. Who knew they existed? And I'm not entirely sure and that I'm happy survive, to know that they, they existed. They always say cockroaches are going to survive Exactly. Everything. So the, the giant cockroaches survived. We also saw, which was amazing, um, one um, vampire squid, and it went zooming by, and um, that thrilled um, uh, Dr. Joy because those are incredibly rare to see. We saw the occasional eel and occasional crab, uh, little teeny um, like blue and pink fish, but mostly it was nothing. I mean, this was the occasional occurrence. and Maybe something that had wandered in there accidentally. They just like sort of made their way, you know, in. What we should have seen, we should have seen a lot more. But what is not good is that what was also out there is um, 3,000 miles worth of oil. Right, now you know, let, let, let's, I yeah. want to nail these facts down for people. Yeah. You said, did you say it was an inch or two thick, the bed? At most, um, at, at its greatest depths, it's two inches thick. So at its greatest depths, this carpet, carpet of oil, of oil near the site is 3,000 square miles, 60 miles by, or whatever. This is a huge um, carpet of oil that has been there for four years. Now, now, now I want to ask you a couple of questions based on that. So yeah. what happens to oil that bonds, if it does bond, what happens to oil that corrects it is applied to? Because as most people know who are listening to this program, they know that the Gulf was sprayed. Uh, in my, uh, my friend has a great phrase, in my conspiranoia <laughs> reality that I live in, um, the uh, my friend said that uh, they sprayed the corrects on there to get the oil out of the way so that the media couldn't see it. That was my probably my greatest disappointment in Obama, that he allowed them to not have the press come and photograph and videotape and report honestly what happened, that all the 
uh, press had to stay away from the site. I thought that was the most disgraceful thing that Obama ever did in his administration. I mean, we were I was regularly you know, threatened by police for trying to go to beaches to cover spill sites. Um, people who wanted to volunteer to take us out in boats were told that they would be fined $60,000 for doing so and be sent to jail. Um, fortunately, some people were so concerned with getting the truth out that they still brought myself and other journalists out into, into the trouble? water. Um, I mean, you don't know. I don't know. Hopefully not. Not the ones that were kind enough to help me. And people, you know, were paid. So it was, you know, they, they were desperate for for income and they were risking, you know, a dollar in the hand for the threat of a $60,000 fine because they were desperate and needed it. But you know, I mean, the, the obstacles were great in so trying what, to cover this story. So what happens to the Kregs that applied to the oil? So part of the story a here of dispersant, it's a, it's, a, it's a chemical dispersant. Part of the story is that the only thing that BP had prepared for and that actually any oil company operating in the Gulf had prepared for was oil um, on the surface of the ocean. And it's very common to apply a little bit of Corexit to a little bit of oil on the surface. The idea is to that you do want to break it up because you don't want animals to get caught in it. You also don't want it floating to shore. Oil is toxic. You don't want humans coming into contact with it. And the idea is that you know you apply a little at the top. And it's some harm to the water, but it's worth it. But this was a totally unprecedented oil spill in size and scope and depth. And for the first time ever, the Corexit, because they'd only planned for something at the top, not expecting a three-month-long oil spill, although they should have. They paid the whole site with Corexit, basically. They applied it at the bottom of the ocean. So they sprayed it at the site of the spill. So you had this huge cocktail, toxic cocktail, of the toxic Corexit combined with the toxic oil. What they did was basically intentionally sacrifice the ocean in an attempt to protect the shore. But, of course, they failed at both because they also hadn't prepared to protect the shore. So not only did they apply all of this uh, chemical to the ocean, but the oil also did, of course, make its way to the shore, as did now the chemically infused, Corexit-infused oil make it to shore. Now, when you talk about Corexit, you said that oil is leaking into the Gulf as a matter of course, constantly. And the system has survived, and even uh, at its most, uh, I don't want to say pristine, but at its most natural, at its least impacted, there's still some oil coming out of the bottom of the Gulf because there's oil all over the Gulf, and that just is how the ecosystem operates and exists. But Corexit is not something that comes out of the ground. Corexit is a toxic chemical that's poured into the Gulf of Mexico. On top of that site is... I'm going to guess that spit in the ocean in terms of how it breaks down into the into the body of water. But has there been any research done to determine what Corexit itself has done to wildlife and to the so it, is it, that is that two inch layer there? Because you said that they commingled the Corexit with it at the site. Yeah. They, they 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 shot it into the stream of oil at the site, correct? At the, at the, That's at, right. at the wellhead. That's right. And when they did that, is that layer of oil on the ground, is that bonded with Corexit? Has anybody done any tests about that? Yeah, there is. Um, Corexit, Corexit and the oil have both stayed because the bottom of the ocean is a dark, cold place. It's yeah. like the and best the freezer yeah, in sure. the world. And so it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. But also... Um, What's left of the oil, essentially, so there there are um, microbes that have developed over millennia that have feasted on this. And just to make this clear, 
very teeny, teeny, tiny amount of naturally releasing oil that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico in very, very small amounts. And over millennia, communities have developed around this oil, and they have thrived because it's small and it's a natural occurrence, and there's time for the species to commingle with the oil. So there are these naturally occurring microbes that do eat the oil. But they ate as much as they could, and it was only a small amount, but also they only ate what they could. So what they left behind is also the most toxic parts of the oil. It's what they didn't want to eat. And these are called polycyclic uh, aromaic hydrocarbons, which are um, the most toxic part of the oil. The stuff that's at the bottom, the two-inch carpet. With the corrects. So the corrects, it's down there as well. As well. Now, how would you characterize BP's response to this, what you've observed? Well, I'm, uh, Initially and down the road. We know now through the court case that um, BP had said in its uh, exploration plan to drill that it could handle a blowout almost three times as large as the oil spill that actually ended up happening. And it was, in fact, totally unprepared. It also had said that it could handle the oil spill, which to me, which also implies that it could stop the oil spill. But it turns out that the only method that it had available for stopping the oil spill, it and every other oil company, by the way, operating in the Gulf of Mexico, was the only thing they already knew how to do, which is also the most dangerous thing, which is drill another well. It took 152 days to drill another well. That's the only thing that permanently stopped right, the well. To pour the sand in. First, they did the thing where they tried the um, uh, the top hat, which was throwing. I mean, we saw this on jokes made about it on TV because it was laughable. It's things that work in shallow water, 400 feet. This was 5,000 feet. So throwing golf balls and and tire and uh, tire, rubber tire, rubber from tires well, onto well, it. What should they have done? Where have you seen examples of this going? Obviously not to that level because the Deepwater Horizon is an anomaly, I'm assuming, correct, in terms of scope. Yes. But where you've seen these kinds of things, where have you seen something effective that's worked? That's not golf balls. I mean, what do they do? So what's come out since is that there is another temporary method that they should have known about and should have had ready, they and every other company. Again, this isn't just BP. So I went into this story thinking— So BP is a company that really—they were the unlucky ones. It could have happened to any of them. It could and still could. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I want to get back to this thing, which is where have you seen this? Because it's one thing to say— there's something that they should have known after the fact. But at the time that it happened, what information did they have? Because I want to be fair to them as well. At the time that it happened, what information did they have where you've seen other people do this better? That someone's done it better, there isn't an example. What they all did know, however, there are very clear examples. So um, what they all knew, all the companies knew, was that the thing that they're depending on the most, which is something called the blowout preventer, which is the huge piece of equipment that sits on top of a well that's supposed to, when there is a blowout, prevent it by shutting in the well. So it's called the blowout preventer. That these pieces of equipment only had about a 50% success rate. This is the last line of defense. They also should have, and this is something that is just them, uh, they should have had it running as properly as it could have. So one of the things we also know is that they had allowed the batteries on the blowout preventer to run out. Did that affect them in court? Did they pay for that in court? So they didn't get their hands chopped off for that. They were so. So I guess there's 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 three pieces of the litigation. The first BP was found grossly negligent and definitely got in trouble by the judge for, in the judge's words, putting profits above everything else. And that was in 
what led to the blowout. So BP made decision after decision after decision on the rig. And I guess in this circumstance, yes, there there are things that other companies have done better that they could have done better, where they were trying to save time, trying to save money, and just making um, you know very, very, very poor decisions time and time again that contributed, that made the blowout happen. And so for that, the judge found them grossly negligent. But everything that came after, meaning their inability to stop the blowout, their inability to clean it up, their decision to apply Crexit, their inability to keep it from hitting the the shore and killing 100,000 animals, for that, the judge said, no other company knows how to do it any better than you did, which means not at all. And the government didn't require you to do it any better. So you and everybody else gets a pass on everything that came after. The judge said that. So where we're now coming to is the third phase of trial where the judge is now going to say how much BP owes, and it could be as much as almost $14 billion for all of the oil that was released into the Gulf of Mexico. But it could be as little as $140,000. You've covered this industry for 15 years or more. Mm -hmm. You're at the bottom of the – you're in the submersible Mm -hmm. and all of the fears of that aside and everything. But with your knowledge of what's going on and why – and what isn't happening and why. And you're with this woman who's this colleague of yours, this revered colleague mm-hmm. from the University of Georgia, Dr. Joy. And what did you think when you were down there? Did it upset you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say certainly— does any of it, Are you completely uh, 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 cynical about it, or does any of it really upset you? Oh, it always upsets me. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't tell you every day there's something new that I learn uh, about this disaster uh, that still continues to— uh, depress me and shock me. And when I was down there, I was unbelievably depressing. I, I, I looked out of the window, uh, I was at the bottom of the ocean, you know, this incredible, unthinkable opportunity. And it's a, you know, basically a virtual dead zone. And not only are we down there and there's lots of time to reflect, but suddenly we see tracks in the ground, which are parallel, which means that they're clearly uh, man-made. And that signals that not only is there this dead zone, but somebody's laying cable down there, which means that I later come to learn they're getting ready to drill again in the exact same area. And everything is just um, literally back, you know, back to business as usual. What hope do you think there is for uh, accelerating renewable production in this country? Well, I mean, first of all, the U.S. government subsidizes the oil industry to the tune of billions of dollars every year. Take that so money. there's lots of money there. Yeah. They don't need it. They're the wealthiest industry the world has ever yeah. known. We can take those subsidies. Those can be applied to alternative energy. Um, we can also, you know, I think it it absolutely is something that can be done and should be done at the local level. So if we look at local consumption, reducing local consumption of energy and providing energy at the local level, I think you'll also come up with more um, uh, potential resources made available and partnering with government with federal government resources. But there's a lot of money out there that can be um, successfully cut out of the budget that's being used to subsidize and support the fossil fuel industry that I think almost everyone would agree is unnecessary, and that money, at a minimum, can be directed to So you think that the government is still it has a role. the key player? Not the only player, but right. it has a role. Okay. It certainly has a role to play. After our interview in the studio, I called Antonio to ask her a couple of follow-up questions about the recent spill in Santa Barbara, drilling in the Arctic, 
and the settlement with BP in the Gulf. I apologize for the quality of this recording as I was dialing in from a cell phone. Well, thank you, Antonia, for taking my phone call. And uh, I had three things I wanted to uh, touch on with you that we did not cover in much detail during the podcast uh, in the studio. And that is your comments about infrastructure and in particular how they relate to the Santa Barbara spill uh, and also what's going on in the Arctic and uh, with the drilling that Obama just um, uh, permitted and, of course, the VP settlement. So tell me what you think about what happened up in Santa Barbara. Are we going to see more of that? Yeah, I mean, it's really been just um, a really intense period of time for uh, the oil sector and the oil industry, but also protests against the industry. So in Santa Barbara, there's been a wave of of protests of people calling for an end of of development of oil in the entire state as a result of 100,000 gallons of oil leaking from an onshore pipeline onto Refugio State Beach, just a beautiful uh, prime piece of beach, and into the ocean, about 20,000 gallons made it into the ocean. So this is definitely, you know, as we use more of the product, more problems arise, uh, like the Santa Barbara spill. So you would say that this is, uh, this infrastructure problem, as far as oil pipelines are concerned, whether they go from offshore to onshore or along the interior itself, the, the pumping of oil to refineries and so forth. This is a problem that we might see again and again over time, correct? We absolutely have been. Um, so we are, have problems. We have these, these oil spills are, are fairly constant um, with ruptured old pipelines or just problems that arise. Um, but similar to another infrastructure issue is um, – oil being carried on trains, which have now been dubbed bomb trains, which have this tendency to derail and explode. And all of this is very worrisome when you're looking at um, shell oil, which uh, I was recently at the protests in Seattle against Shell's plans to drill in the Arctic. You know, if we can't even get it right on the beach in Santa Barbara, where you'd think a lot of people would be paying attention to them, um, you know, look at the idea of drilling uh, d- drilling for oil in the Arctic, an incredibly, um, incredibly difficult, treacherous area of the world to be drilling in, frozen most of the year, very long distances to anyone whose uh, job it is to address any incidents that might happen, an incredibly ecologically rich and fragile part of the world, a place where Inupiaq, uh, Native Alaskans are dependent of, uh, with subsistence lifestyles on the wealth that that natural environment is supposed to give them, whales, um, walruses, other uh, sea life, all of which could be just devastated if there was, you know, even a small oil spill, much less a major blowout, you know, along the lines of BP's uh, Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, um, lastly, is, of course, the settlement. Since we were in the studio together, and, you know, one of the primary reasons for this phone call is for you to give your assessment of the settlement that came down uh, uh, in court the other day. Yeah, yeah, this is just a really significant settlement, um, a significant amount of money. 
um, but also a deeply problematic settlement. So after five years of litigation, um, if this agreement is agreed to by the court, but there's also a public comment period, so listeners who are interested should, you know, flag that, um, this would end the federal government's litigation against BP for the 2010 Gulf oil spill and the litigation brought by the five uh, most directly impacted states and some 400 local governments, um, like I said, after five years of litigation. And it's a major settlement. It would be for $18.7 billion um, carried out over, depending on what the pot that we're looking at, uh, 15 to 18 years. And that that is a lot of money. It would be the largest um, environmental uh, settlement in U.S. history and the largest settlement of its kind um, for any company in U.S. history, but this was also the largest offshore drilling oil spill in history. It lasted for 87 days. Eleven men were killed in the initial explosion. It's called it's caused mass devastation across uh, the region, and if you just look at um, BP's legal responsibility to cover those costs, but also just the letter of the law... Um, this is uh, really only about a third of what BP should be being required to pay. Um, you know, just looking at the numbers, uh, the straight numbers, BP was found grossly negligent for causing this disaster that carries with it a fine per barrel of oil spilled, which is should be as much as $4,300, which should have been $18 billion just for those fines, just the Clean Water Act fines. Um, but instead, we have $18 billion that's now covering all of the natural resource damages and restoration. Um, and the state eco- settlements as well. Exactly, and the states, uh, economic costs by the states and the localities. And to me, the $18 billion is really what BP should have just paid for the Clean Water Act. But then on top of that, this $18 billion is supposed to also cover all of the natural and wildlife damages to the environment, and not just the harm caused, um, you know, to fish it, to, to um, sea life, um, to fisheries, but also restoration. So the Gulf is supposed to be made whole um, environmentally as well as economically. So, um, Antonia, uh, this was a settlement uh, involving a federal judge, and uh, this is something that BP agreed. To pay, do you think a settlement in these cases typically leads to more money? Like, like should people be grateful? Should they view this settlement and should they view this case, this amount of money, as a positive thing? Or do you think if the states and the federal government had pressed this judge and they had, and they had pushed BP to the wall, they might have gotten even more money? You know, it's very hard to say, obviously, with this type of huge, uh, you know, really precedent-setting litigation. You know, in the end, I-, I think this is too low, for sure. And I think it's, you know, insufficient on basically every count. And BP's stock went up yesterday. The market is cheering this decision as an excellent decision for BP. I actually did an analysis early on in the spill I'm um, just looking at again the letter of the law, and I came up with an estimate of about 200 billion for what would be a reasonable expectation um, for the full legal. You know, really just applying the letter of the law. That said, you know, BP at the end of the day 
probably has significantly more money, probably with the rest of the oil industry behind it, to keep fighting this litigation. And, you know, the reason why the states are cheering it and the reason why the federal government is cheering it is because, you know, many were afraid that it would be even less than this or that it would roll on in litigation for another 20 years. And it's, right. you know, hard these to say. People, these people like Exxon up in uh, Valdez and, and, and even other corporations that are not in the petroleum industry, they've got the money to extend this litigation into decades. These companies can never be forced and they can never be expected to pay the real cost of what they've done. I mean, I think part of the problem is, you know, we have a government that's being whittled and whittled and whittled away at, and there are real costs associated to that. And one is, you know, the the inability of the Justice Department to be able to level, you know, the type of... Um, litigation that it would otherwise want to, the inability of regulators to actually be able to regulate the operations of companies doing these types of, you know, extensive, dangerous operations, the willingness to do so because of the expectation that when they, you know, leave government, they'll get a more lucrative job uh, working in the oil sector and all of that, you know, a lot of it boils down to the financial resources are just unequal. Antonio, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. And, uh, uh, and, and again, uh, uh, um, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing in terms of uh, your investigative reporting of the oil industry. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a pleasure. Antonia Juhasa's article on the repercussions of BP's oil spill is in the June issue of Harper's Magazine. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing.